Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that you can develop products that customers love. And I wonder if you can relate to this frustration. The pressure to get products and product updates released quickly sometimes might mean making compromises on things like design quality. It's an organizational issue, right? Moving quickly to beat those competitors and keep up with changing customer preferences. Sometimes that speed is more important than quality. We're gonna talk about that today and our guest, Debbie Levitt, she's a renowned customer experience design and author. She recommends a different approach. When companies take the time to design products that match the customer's needs, profit soar, customer satisfaction and retention soars, and employee satisfaction gets a nice uptick too. I know there's challenges in all that. We'll talk about some of those. Her book, Customers Know You Suck, addresses how to better understand, attract, and retain customers. And I love the stickiness of that title too, Customers Know You Suck. We'll discuss some of those practices that help you be more successful with the products that you work on now. As a reminder, you can find a written summary of everything that we discuss, including a one-page action guide to help you put into action some of the key takeaways that Debbie will share with us. It's also a really good discussion guide if you want to talk about these topics with uh, your colleagues and like. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 459. Also, this podcast is made possible by the Rapid Product Master Experience. That's the RPM experience. This helps product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing to product really on the same page, increasing performance, working in alignment to reach those North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge together. What we do is we meet virtually for nine weeks, 75 minutes each week, and participants learn the seven essential product knowledge areas they really need to do a better job performing together. And in the process, we're going to be building trust and improving collaboration. It's not like other training. It is an experience that we go through together. If it sounds like it could be interesting to you and helpful, please go to productmasterynow.com RPM. Debbie, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Chad, and hello to the audience. For those of you that are just listening, which I understand is most of our, our listeners, the Debbie's background looks awesome. What are your branding colors? You have these great color circles behind you. Oh, yeah. I just went with kind of three interlocking circles, and I, I just went with a blue and a green and an orange. And then when they overlapped, they created lots more colors. And when I had to have it embroidered on a sweatshirt, it was 11 colors of thread. So I, I spent big, but I went for you the branding. Big. Yeah, it looks really good. Yeah, it's a nice design. <laughs> we'll talk about other like aspects that. of design, product design, and specifically customer experience design. Tell us the, the perspective of a customer experience designer. What do you, what, what do people doing CX design think about? Yeah, so basically my experience is in a lot of strategy, customer experience, and user experience. So I'm focused on things both strategically and tactically that affect the whole ecosystem and every touch point with people. So in some cases, when people hear design, they usually think I'm making things pretty or I'm rounding the corners or I'm deciding what color the button is, but I don't have an artistic background. I have a degree in music. I think all of my artistic talent is in music. So my background is really more about human behavior and psychology and and the ethical side of that. And so when I think about customer experience design, it's designed with a big D. It's the idea of human-centered design. Some people have heard of HCD or user-centered design, UCD. These are not new. They're not small. They're not seat of pants. Some people don't know HCD has ISO standards. 
And so it is formalized and it's a real, it's a big boy. It's a real thing. And, and technically when you are ISO 9000 or 9001 certified, you are promising to be customer centric and follow the path of human centered design. So there was a, a book that I don't know when this got written. I'm drawing a complete blank on the author's name. You'll, I'm sure it will know it. Legend in the human design space. I believe the title was Don't Make Me Think. And it, it addressed simple things like you walk up to an office building and the door there has a handle that looks like it should be pulled. But if you try, the door is not going to open for you, right? It's a door that's supposed to be pushed instead. And we used to have, and probably still do, right, doors like this. I ran into them a lot. Remember, this, that was a big thing that the book talked about. Instead of having a plate, if you're supposed to push the door, it should be more intuitive. Oh, there's not something to grab hold of. There's something to push. This is more clear. Is that the sort of things we're talking about, that kind of human design? Yeah, a little bit. And Don't Make Me Think is a great book. You're actually referencing The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. And actually, the name came to me, Don Norman, wrong book. (laughs) Yeah, and some people call that a Norman door. And in the business, we call that an affordance. An affordance is something that people can see or experience where they know, oh, there's something I can do here. And it's clear and it's obvious and it shouldn't need a sign or a label. So always look for those uh, affordances. But to me, when I think about human-centered design, it doesn't really start with the design part of it. It really starts with evidence, knowledge, and data. What do we know about, as I like to say on my show, what do we know about people, systems, and contexts. What do we understand about our customers or target users or maintainers, installers, resellers, whoever's in our ecosystem? What do we know about these people? Because if we don't really understand them and the tasks they're trying to accomplish and all of the complexities of that, we're unlikely to understand their problems and then we're unlikely to solve their problems. So to me, the Norman door is a thing or designing the right affordances is a thing, but to me, it's really at the, almost at the end of a much longer process of making sure we're more customer centric. Okay. I want to dive into some of the categories you just provided us, right? The, it starts with evidence, knowledge, and sure. data, and what do we know about systems? And I forgot the second one already. You said systems and something people, in context. People, systems, and context. People. Okay. I missed the one. People, okay. systems, and context. Before we get there, one question that came to my mind as we were talking about that was, gosh, I wonder how much this costs an an organization, right? Adding CX sounds like it might be costly for the organization to do these things. And maybe flipping that the other way, what does it cost if we don't? Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think you you self-answered there. I think that we, to me, there's always ways to be cheaper or faster. And we can pursue those if those match our company values, if those match our attitude towards our customers and users. We can always be cheaper and faster. I, I said somewhat famously at this point in a keynote speech I gave in early 2019, I said, look, if we just want to be cheaper and faster, why don't we fire QA? We'll just assume that developers write pre- pretty good code. Someone will call it good enough. Someone will say, we'll fix it later and fire QA. Hey, faster, cheaper. Check us out. We're the bionic team. 
for those of you who are around in the 70s. And so I, I think that always we can always do that. And I call that speed over quality. But I think that there is uh, there are many opportunities for us to be quality over speed. I know that scares people. They think, wait a minute, that takes time and money. And I go, yeah, and the companies we admire most put in that time and money and we love them for it. And then we right. show up to our jobs and we end up in the loop of mediocrity where we go, ah, we don't have to spend time or money on that. Let's just go with our best guess. Right. I remember I don't keep up as much these days with Apple releases as I may have uh, earlier in the life of the iPhone, but these threads and discussions and places we're talking about, man, why isn't there a new iPhone yet? This so-and-so company has had this technology for a while and iPhone says it's coming out. But then when the iPhone does release their product, many people were very excited about what they did and how they interpreted the integration of that technology. And they may have added some things to that, but they overall they're really good at creating a better customer experience, right? And we admire them for that. Or at least they're telling you that they are. Yeah, some of us interpret that. Maybe it's a really good marketing, but some of us have that interpretation too. <laughs> Gosh, there's so many good things that have come up so far. I, I love you have good sound bites for things, right? The speed over quality <laughs> or you. quality over speed. We can always be cheaper and faster. Is, does that align with our values? And would we fire QA, right, to be cheaper and faster? Sure can. Yeah, yeah, we could. It doesn't sound like a wise thing. Right. Let's make this applicable so we have some good takeaways for our listeners. And I'm not sure where the best place is to go for that right now. I want to have some steps to think about or a framework to think about for how to engage in customer experience design. If we don't really have that capability at the moment, uh, that might be a good place for us to start. If it's the evidence, knowledge, data aspects, maybe to start there. Or maybe you have some steps to think about how do we start bringing this into our processes? Yeah, sure. We can talk about where's a place to start. Now, some companies might already have these people on hand. Some people have hired mm -hmm. UX researchers. That's their, that's sometimes their title. You might have UX researchers. You might have people who specialize in qualitative research. It's usually not market research and it's usually not quantitative research, but we're going to get the best evidence, knowledge, and data that will drive our strategies, priorities, decisions, products, and services from the qualitative data. We can run a survey that says, are you sometimes thirsty and wish you could drink out of a cup? And oh my gosh, so many people say yes. And then we all sit around a meeting table. We go, I think people need this cup idea thingy that we have. And then we release the giant one liter cup the size of your head and it's not selling. We go, but we gave them the cup. What happened here? And that means to me that we didn't do the right research. We didn't have our qualified specialists plan, execute, analyze, synthesize, and come up with that actionable data so that we really understand our users' needs and their tasks. To me, it all comes down to tasks. I don't love jobs to be done as much as I love task analysis. I think task analysis is like the 10X of jobs to be done. So I really want to understand people and the way they do this now, and even the way they try to make it easier or harder for themselves through workarounds and band-aids. Every single thing that we notice in that observational study is an opportunity for our company to either adjust something that small and do something incremental or be the disruptors and innovators that we claim we want to be. I'm sure everyone listening has been in at least 4,000 meetings in the last day where someone said they wanted to innovate or be disruptive and we're not. In fact, we suck. And now I'm not going to say you must be innovative and disruptive, but I will say 
You must be great. That's what customers want from us more than anything, more than speed. They want the quality. They want this to be five stars out of five. And when it's not, they'll happily leave you the appropriate rating. And hopefully you're listening. Yeah. And we need to certainly respond to what they need from us. So the task analysis, really key. You talk about observation studies, ethnographic research to, to do that. So we're, we're watching how people do things, how they accomplish that thing now, right? Uh, maybe it's what cup they reach for now to, to drink and why they're dissatisfied with some attributes of that cup, for your example. Besides observation studies, are there other things that are useful to do? Is that really a key one to emphasize? It's certainly a key one, but there's plenty of other sources of data that will sometimes help inspire the observational study. We might have surveys or focus groups or NPS. We might have customer support tickets or a data pull from them. We might have some angry tweets at us. Now, very often these give us a clue of what could be going wrong, but we also know that customers are sometimes not great at understanding or diagnosing their own problem, and they often don't know the best solution for themselves. So to me, these are the smoke that tell us there's fire. And if we can't know why is this happening, then that's where we have to say, I think it's time for research because I see too many teams and organizations saying, gee, the customer isn't doing this. It would be great for our KPIs if they did more of this. Let's go into a brainstorming workshop or a design sprint and figure out how to make them do more of this. First of all, that's not necessarily customer-centric because where are they in the conversation? They sound like a bit of a pawn on a chessboard. And number two, the best outcomes will come from balancing what customers need and what will serve them best with what also serves business goals and, and KPIs. Yep. And I'm always worried about teams who rush into those workshops. I've been in many of them and people will say, okay, we need people to click this button more. And I'll say, do we know why they're not clicking the button? No, we don't know that. Let's start guessing why they might not be clicking the button. And in the workshop from there is of dubious value because it's what I like to call a guessing sandwich. We're guessing why something is or isn't happening We're guessing what's going to make that different or better. We're guessing what problem we might solve for the customer. And and we're guessing what possible solutions might be best. And then we vote among ourselves on what solutions we like. We don't even uh, go through a good human-centered design process to find the right one. So be careful of those guessing sandwiches. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. 
This is not easy, right? And part of it is not easy because of our experience as individuals. With my teaching hat on, I recently created a innovation executive MBA program for a university, which is great fun and doing well and, and students are really enjoying it. Because it's an executive MBA, most of these people have been involved in some level of, of they've at least seen their organization develop products, right? And been in some roles with that. But when it comes to, oh, we ran into this problem, I know I need to talk in some sense, talk to customers and find out what's going on. I don't know what questions to ask. It's that basic of, I just, I I don't know how to engage to get information to tell me what to actually fix. We know the product's not selling well, whatever the case is, we know there's customer service issues, but I don't know how to just engage. Can the observation studies, whether it's talking, talk to us about this aspect a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best answer for that, and it's one that is sometimes tough for people to hear, so we might need to dig in a little deeper, but my answer is you don't have to know the right questions to ask because the right thing to do is to bring in a qualified professional. There are qualified researchers who know the right questions to ask, but it goes so much farther than just asking the right questions. Because another mistake I see being made is people say, I think if I can call up a few customers and ask them a few questions, I'll know some things. But there's actual research rigor that we care about. There's planning the study. There's looking at the recruiting. Who are we going to talk to? How many of them should there be and where are we going to get them? Do we want current customers? Do we want non-customers who are in the target audience? Then we have to start writing scripts. Now we don't totally follow the script, but the script is our guide and we'll ask spontaneous follow-up questions. We also have the execution of this. Many people do not have a good interviewing style. They ask leading questions. They ask the wrong questions. They ask questions in the hopes of validating something they're already thinking. And then we've got all of the analysis and synthesis. Sometimes people say, I called three people. I think I know a thing. Let's go. We, When we do this correctly, we enter into a larger analysis and synthesis phase. We want to end up with actionable stuff. We want to have problem statements and pain points and needs. And we want to fully understand the user and document that in whatever way is appropriate. And sometimes there's different styles of mapping or documentation that we use. We don't always make personas. We don't always make a customer journey map. And so I think the, the, the hard thing there is when someone says, I think we need to talk to customers or watch customers or engage with them more, more directly. I don't know the right questions to ask, but I know who does. Mm. So I think that we sometimes forget that we don't have to play every role. I don't know how to write Python to do a good data query. I don't have to know that. We've got data and analytics experts who we rely on to pull the stuff that we need. And so I think, especially in product, the product people don't it should really stop feeling like they have to spin every plate and wear every hat and tap dance to every song. It's really okay to say, I'm going to lean on a great UX designer to to be a problem solver and work on that interface. I'm going to lean on a really great CX or UX or qualitative researcher to know the right things to ask. And normally what we do with our clients is we do a collaborative kickoff process that uh, I have a little graphic I can throw on the screen that we call the discovery phase knowledge quadrant. And basically the idea here is we're all going to get together and talk about what do we know and what information is missing. And that way we don't move forward on a project when we're missing key information or we haven't looked more at things we are guessing and assuming because we know that the risk of moving forward with those guesses and assumptions, while it feels fast now, 
If we look at the larger arc of the project and all of the fixes we're going to have to make later and the outcomes of complaints and attrition, FAST might not have paid off. So I would say don't worry about what questions to ask. Very often, especially product managers, don't always ask the best questions, but you don't have to become a research expert. You just need to collaborate with one. Let's talk about how this actually works in organizations. And my experience might be a little bit rusty because it's not an area that I I have a personal experience with the last few years. What I envision is organizations have CX capabilities, that they have some kind of human-centered design researcher, not all organizations, of course, but medium-large organizations have some kind of capabilities for this. Sometimes, We're working on, pick a number, working on 20 projects uh, across the company right now, enhancing products, making new products, some order that's going on concurrently. And those CX resources are smaller and less available. And me as a product person goes, oh, I know I, I have to get special approval to go talk to them, to get them involved. Oh, that's your first problem. Yeah, I just ran into a question I have that I think they could help answer, but I, I think it's going to take too long for where we are in our cycle right now. Just what are some of the practical things we run into in companies and how do we work through that? It's a great question, and thanks for bringing it up. Really, what's at the core of that is we didn't hire enough of the right people. If we said, hey, we have a bottleneck, engineering is missing their sprints, we don't have enough engineers to spin up this team for this important project, somebody might say, holy cats, let's spin up some budget and let's get that team, or let's fill in a couple of more people. Sometimes what happens when we don't have enough of those qualitative researchers, somebody says, this can't be too hard, it's just talking to people, right? I know how to talk to people. I'll go do it. And now you have a little bit of, uh, or a lot of bit of a problem. So ultimately what's going to solve it, it has really to do with hiring and team composition. It's really about getting that budget. We know that research is important. Now, usually we're relying on numbers. We know our data and analytics are important. We know our satisfaction scores are important. We know that there are lots of research that we do now, even when someone does call a customer, that's important. And imagine if we did this more formally with people who were really amazing at it. And so I advise people that a starting point hypothetically would be, let's say you have a project team, whether you think of that as a product team or an agile team or a scrum team. I don't want to fight today on which word is the best word. They're all okay. Very often people say, let's just, when I used to work in companies, I was assigned to three projects. That's how spread thin I was. And everybody on every team immediately hated me because I wasn't fully available to them. And as you said, now we're waiting. We're waiting for Debbie because we only have 30% of her time. That's a recipe for bad morale, bad collaboration, and possibly a project that doesn't go as well as it should. If I were 100% allocated to that project, the agilists are smiling. Everybody knows I'm available to them. My attention is not uh, pulled by something else. And so the steps that we end up taking are, okay, maybe you have a UX designer of some sort who is that fully embedded or allocated resource. Now, once you have that designer, I would also recommend, and this is a, a growth process, then getting one full-time specialized researcher for that team. And that way you've got someone who's working on the design and someone who's working more on the evidence, knowledge, 
data, prioritization, helping with the strategy. And this can be visualized with looking for which button I have to press. There's TriTrack Agile out there. Now we've got Dual Track, which says, hey, all that UX stuff is on a separate track than all that engineering and delivery stuff. But there's an evolution of that, which I didn't invent, and it's called TriTrack Agile. And the idea is you've got three streams of work going on at the same time. The first are your researchers, because they're going to set everybody else up for success. And then you've got the people who are working more on product management and strategy and design. Now notice that is research informed, and then we're bringing it to delivery. Now, ultimately, I think the best way to staff teams, and usually people fall out of their chairs when I say this one, but I believe the best ways to staff CX and UX teams are Three full-time, fully allocated and dedicated and embedded researchers, plus two full-time, fully allocated, dedicated designers. First of all, you've got redundancy there in case somebody gets COVID or goes on vacation or quits and disappears. And then you've got a full team working on stuff, which makes us much faster because a common complaint about UX is, I think they're slow. We're definitely slow if you put one third of a person on a thing. You've got what, six to 10 engineers on a thing and they get weeks or sometimes months to do it. But yet when a third of a UX person wants more than a few days, everybody falls out of their chair. And I think it's a double standard we just have to be more aware of. If six to 10 engineers working on something for weeks is agile, Let's put five UX people on something, could take weeks. That can be agile too. We just have to make sure we've planned for it. We have to make sure it's in your roadmap. We have to make sure that we understand what our assembly line looks like and who's going to get what at what point, and then we can be smart about it. Sorry, I've been talking your head off. You must have a question. I'm glad I had my seatbelt on as you offered that, so I did not fall out of my chair with the Very good. F- five five added design sort of people who are adding to the team here. I'm with you on the need for sure. That does seem like a lot to try to accomplish. So the, the, the big trends in product teams has been the addition of the UX person. So we, we've been doing that quite a bit. So to have that person involved. And then maybe, I don't know, two, three years ago, we started seeing a data scientist type person show up on the team to help understand all the data that we have. I don't imagine this is something we need for every t- every product team because we might just be doing the incremental improvement or in the matrix organization. What kind of projects... Give me a scope around the kind of project we're talking about. Yeah. And also remember, if we brought in a data scientist or analysis to help us make sense of that data, why didn't we bring in that qualified UX researcher to help us with the qualitative data? Because Mm -hmm. usually the data scientist is not necessarily looking at that qual data because very often the company is barely collecting it. To me, we need both sides uh, of that. As for what projects do or don't need specialized UX people, my simple answer for that is, do we care about the user experience? Do we care? about the customer experience? Do we, are we invested in that? Is that a priority? And very often companies come up with reasons to say no to that. And I would still want to challenge that. Would it match our company values for us to not care about the customer or user experience right here? Is that honest? Is that integrity? Is that transparency? Is that everyone say it with me? 
empathy. So I think that the the question has to be that, and sometimes I hear from like B2B or enterprise people like, ah, we don't need those UX people because our coworkers are going to use this and they're stuck with it and they'll have to use it whether it sucks or not. And I say, okay, let's, I'm going to hold your hand. We're going to walk over to someone's desk and you're going to look them in the eye and tell them you don't care if this software is hard to use, easy to use, flawed, full of errors, giving you error messages all day, making you inefficient, making you miss your quotas. I want you to go look at that person in the eye and tell them you, you genuinely don't care about that. And so it's really hard to inspire empathy in people. That's why I say, I, I can't care about empathy right now. It's become a buzzword. I care about sympathy. Can I make you genuinely care about the real experience someone is having. That's just sympathy, sympathy. Sorry, your cat died. Okay. I'm genuinely sorry that you are having a bad experience in our system and I want you to have a better one. And that's when we should be bringing in the specialists who concentrate on this. And that doesn't mean UI designers who make it pretty or add our brand on it. They're important, but they're not usually UX people or CX people. The CX people are typically more in the problem finding and problem solving realm. They're in the behavioral and cognitive psychology realm if you've hired the right people. If not, sometimes someone calling themselves a UX designer is just doing art and that's okay. We need art, but art and problem solving are not the same thing. So we have to be careful. Again, even when you can get one dedicated researcher on that team, that's a great start. Maybe your research, I'm sorry, a designer, if you can get one researcher, that's great. If you have a researcher who's shared across teams, that's also a start. My my point is start anywhere because the cool thing about starting anywhere is let's imagine we have one designer per team, but we have a researcher who has to juggle three or four teams. When that researcher starts to produce some good stuff for one of those teams, the other teams are going to go, oh crap, we don't want to wait for that. That was good stuff. How fast can we get that? And someone's going to go, Hey, these people are paid X a year. In America, a researcher is usually paid around what a designer or an engineer might be paid. Across America, as a general average, maybe a senior is paid 120, 130. $100,000. Juniors might be getting 70, 80. You don't want to bring in a junior alone. They need some love, but you can pair them up. You can say, oh, wow, this goes so well when we've got a lead researcher who's got five, six, seven years experience and a couple of these juniors who have a great educational background and know their stuff. It's just their first corporate job. And you can build amazing teams for relatively smaller amounts of money and Start out with them being a little bit of that internal agency model where they're helping multiple teams. And then someone's going to go, oh, man, we wish we knew that. Well, I want a team like that. Awesome. Okay. So many good points in there. And and we'll have all these written up uh, in the show notes to make it easier to find as well. Really appreciate the information and the emphasis on the value of customer experience and having that as part of the product team and having that perspective and that empathy does matter. I know we, we use this word a lot, right? We, we throw it around, but knowing what it is like to walk in that customer's shoes, anytime when we say, we're, we're the customer, we're designing for ourselves, we're creating for ourselves, we're probably getting it wrong. Customers know you suck. I saw a product management platform created by really good product managers for product managers. And they're like, we're the customer and got it completely wrong because you're not talking to the actual customer. This is really good. Yeah, you are not the user. Exactly. 
Awesome. As listeners know, we we, uh, often wrap up, we always actually wrap up with an innovation quote. We chatted about this a little bit previously, and I didn't push too far because I I always like being surprised. I'm going to ask you for one and see what your response is like. Yeah. So for innovation quote, I couldn't pick one because I've found over time that a lot of the quotes that we most often hear have either been debunked. So for example, we've learned Henry Ford didn't say if they wanted faster horses, boop, bop, a beep. So we, we don't seem to totally know where that came from. A lot of people like to quote Thomas Edison. We've since learned that he was a patent troll who stole other people's ideas and then tried to patent them first. I'm not sure I want to quote that guy because I have empathy and I care about company values and ethics. And then the other reason why I didn't really love the idea of a quote is I also thought about some of the people who are often the most quotable. I think about Steve Jobs. I'm a huge fan of Disney parks and resorts. So lots of Walt Disney quotes, uh, which were mostly written by a guy named Marty and then Walt said them. But the interesting thing about a lot of the Steve Jobs quotes is we repeat them and repeat them and we put them up on posters and we send them out and we put them on LinkedIn and then we don't don't freaking do it. And to me, what is the purpose of a quote if we're not truly, people go, oh, that's inspiring. And I say, it's not inspiring if you don't take action. You have to take action. And so when I see all these quotes, oh, Steve Jobs says, we have to get to know the customers. Steve Jobs says, research and blah, blah, really matter. Steve Jobs says, take your time to put out a great thing that really solves user problems. I'm making these up. These aren't direct quotes, but (laughs) we have all kinds of quotes from him that say these types of things. And then we show up to our job and do none of this. And so my thought is, I don't, I can't get wrapped up in these quotes because the most important thing that should be happening after we hear them isn't happening. Did you take a look at Apple and go, wow, Apple sure gets it right a lot of the time. How can we be more like that? Ooh, we're going to need researchers. We're going to need to release products less often so that they're better, right? Apple doesn't put out crappy MVPs. Apple doesn't put out wacky alphas. Apple has researchers, the type of people we're talking about. They hire them by the bucket load. Apple put 6% of their revenue into R&D. Most companies we know have no R&D and those who did fired them thinking they're too slow. And so I can't get wrapped up in, in what we what Steve Jobs said because we quote it and then we do nothing or we do the opposite. So quote it all up, y'all, but just freaking do it. And you will stand out as being the, you, Debbie, you have the now the award for being the first guest that had a totally different take on quotes by not providing one. Well, I, I appreciate the <laughs> I perspective. We like all the perspectives. And the if we hear something inspiring, probably we should think about how do we put that into action? What does that actually mean to us? For and what can we do about that? Yes, please. <laughs> Very good. Okay. How can people find out more about the work you're doing, about your book, anything else that you have for resources to share with us? Yeah, thanks for asking. So there's a lot of stuff about my company on our new site, customercentricity.com, even though we are called Delta CX. And we've got a YouTube channel called Customer Experience, Customer Centricity. It's brand new. So when you see it, it looks like it has seven and a half subscribers. Don't panic. Our last channel had 7,000 subscribers, but we were having some problems stumbling in the algorithm. And I figured press reset. So come join us on the new channel. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Debbie 
Levitt. Please follow me if you choose to connect. Please mention that you heard me on this show so I know you're not a weirdo who's going to try to sell me something. (laughs) So I think those are probably some of the core places. And once you land there, there will be lots of other information uh, you can find. Certainly on our website, we've got some case studies and our services. And the book is called Customers Know You Suck. It looks almost like this, except I've got a green screen thing going on, so it looks slightly see-through. But it's Customers Know You Suck. It's available on Amazon. It's an audiobook narrated by me. I also have the audiobook available for free on the YouTube channel. So if you don't feel like paying for an audiobook, come listen to it on the YouTube channel for free. If you think you can stand this voice for 16 and a half hours. So yeah, these are some of the ways that you can connect, but ultimately I would just love people to come to me with their questions. Do you have a question about customer experience, customer centricity, how to better balance business goals and customer needs? Let's talk about it. I I love to give people at least a little help for free. Fantastic. Thank you for all the resources. Sounds like customercentricity.com is a good place to check everything out. And I imagine there, there are links off to YouTube as well to get you onto your videos. Yep, in the footer where fun links often are hiding. Or just go to YouTube and search on customer experience, customer centricity, and we'll find that. Debbie, thank you once again for being with us. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks. And listeners, as a reminder, find the written show notes, written details of everything we discussed, and that one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately some key takeaways here at productmasterynow.com slash 459. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating. <laughs>